Hello and welcome to Say That, the podcast where your big questions get real answers. My name is Matt King. I am your host here in the city of Chicago. Joining us here this week is Glenn Fitzgerald. If you say so. Also with us, Jed Brewer. I do say so. Joining us all the way from Rock Ridge, Tennessee, Lee Younger. I seem to be here. All right. We are all in various semi-positive existential states of being. And that's a pretty good place to start with the podcast, I think. And speaking <laughs> of things that only kind of exist... Gentlemen, I have what I hope will be a money-making opportunity emergency. Mm. I like money. Wow. We should hang out. Yeah, money. Now, that has been the the kind of driving force of this podcast. You know, we answer the questions and we try to help the people, but it's really just been a, a forum for us to have money-making ideas. And so yeah. far, I'm not going to lie to you folks, uh, we haven't really hit any home runs. Yeah. But I, I that could be because we're not good at business, being that none of us are trained in it or have any experience. But being that we're four middle-aged white guys, it can't be that. It can't be right. our own lack of uh, skills or abilities. We know that. I'm wondering if we've been focusing on the wrong sector of the economy. Oh, my. Because mm. so far we, we've thought of, of goods. We've thought of services. We've thought of uh, things where we might make something and then someone would give us money and we would give them that thing. And that's has become pretty old school thinking. And gentlemen, I suggest we turn our eyes to scams. Oh, I love scams. <sighs> wow. It does seem to be a huge growing sector of the economy. Can I be the getaway driver? Has been very clear. And someone Lee, you'll be happy to know did mention to me in real life, how much they enjoyed <laughs> that joke about my very much non getaway. Oh, driving. Gosh, <laughs> So, yeah, so love when the podcast bleeds into real life when I'm not expecting it. But again, <laughs> we hope that happens because you've got your, your NFTs, you've got your, your cryptocurrencies, and in conversation, Jed recently pitched the idea that we could get out in front of the world's first Christian cryptocurrency. Oh, yeah. Whoa. Wow. Now, uh, cryptocurrency means it's like uh, you have to solve a puzzle to get it, right? Yeah, that that is certainly one aspect of it. I think a, a broader definition would be, you know how, like, there's cryptozoology? Yeah. So those are, like, animals that don't exist? It's that, but for, for currency, it just doesn't exist. When you, when you say animals that don't exist, that's, like, as opposed to, like, Bigfoot, etc., your yetis and so forth. Sure, absolutely. Look, um, we all know the skunk, the skunk ape exists. Right. Okay. We we're all a fan of the skunk ape. We we respect his domain yeah. and his dominion. Here's what I'm saying is look, you're talking about non non fungible tokens, Matt. Didn't how how many pod, how many years has this podcast been going on? Uh this we're closing out year ten in this recording wow. session. Okay. So what I remember is that ten years ago when we began this, when it was just nigh a baby podcast, um, that you promised Glenn, internet dollars if yep. he would appear on the podcast. Right. Is this the same thing? That's real close in that I was lying then and Glenn will never actually get that money, but I got a lot of labor out of him. And that's the same way <laughs> cryptocurrency works as I understand it. <laughs> so the money is imaginary. Well, it's in the computer. Oh. Now so... you can't like take it out of the computer and go buy stuff with it 
Okay. But that number in the computer, we'll just we'll just put that up as high as you want. But so then you have to hand someone your computer, then they have it. That would make just as much sense. So th- this whole <laughs> idea led me to the extremely potentially cursed Google search of Christian Bitcoin. Because you got to no. see if we're the first ones to jump on this this article. And uh, we're not the first. We are might be the first ones to jump on this idea because the first thing that comes up when I Google that is a uh, Gospel Coalition article from their apparently ongoing uh, series, Ask an Economist, titled, Should a Christian Invest in Bitcoin? Hmm. From October 27th of this year. So we're, we're still dealing with this. And I will say, we, we mock the Gospel Coalition quite often because, well, because of the things they write and then put on the internet. There's, no, hmm. there's really no way to sauce all that. But uh, I will say that these are pre- this is a pretty good description because one of the big uh, block quotes, you know, they pull something out that they shared was, how should a Christian feel about Bitcoin? Well, how do you feel about gambling as an investment strategy? And mm. as the people who are going to be making the poker chips, I say we feel pretty good about it. <laughs> well, there's another article from really the opposite side of the, uh, the coin, so to speak. And I feel like this is where we can come in. The BitcoinMagazine.com, which I can only imagine is the website with the most uh, malware per bit of anywhere on the internet. Wow. Says, Christian fear of Bitcoin stems from lack of knowledge and misdirection. So basically, there's, I think what that translates to in these people is, we haven't figured out the angle to scam Christians on this yet. And gentlemen, I believe that's what they call a gap in the market. Oh, yeah, it's a market opportunity, an inefficiency, if you will. Indeed. So there, there have been various, you know, there's the Bitcoin and Ether and the various, like, kind of crypto bro, like, this is finance and we're Web 3.0ing and da-da-da. Then there's, like, the meme coins that are for, you know, just Elon Musk put something about it on Twitter and it goes viral for the chuckles for, like, the Reddit crowd. So I think the question is, wh- how do we market this? What do we call it? What do we, what do, we do with it? To appeal particularly to the crypto Christian. Mm, wow. Well, I think it's, uh, off the bat, you got the uh, you got to have faith that it'll all go up. That might conflict with Limp Biscuit coin, <laughs> <laughs> or George Michael coin. Yeah, uh, maybe a copyright issue. Well, I think that that's a great idea because with you know the Bitcoin mining, as as Glenn pointed out, you know you get a server farm that does a lot of complex uh, math and solves puzzles. And that's how you get more Bitcoin for yourself. Yeah. Some kind of, some kind of almost merit badge system where, you know, the more faith you have, the more, uh, the more Christian coin we give you. <laughs> well, you know, another thing is like, I assume we're just minting these in a back room somewhere, you know, mint, minting up some coins and, uh, I'm thinking we could hand out like the equivalent of like a shroot bucks to people who listen to the podcast. Wow. Hmm. I think, I think Glenn just posited a world in which, uh, the office accidentally invented cryptocurrency and I'm, I'm chewing on that because that might be true. So we've got, you know, yeah, I love the, the way we got to trick people into doing something we want them to do. Clearly, 
the more downloads and shares of the podcast that you spend, you know, we'll, we'll send you some, some Christian coin, but what else? Cause maybe we, maybe we need to get to the distributors. Like maybe we need to hit up the denominational people, the pastor level people. That's one of those things of, wow. you know, kind of, it, we scale up the thing where you bribe your kid to learn Bible verses. Well, yeah, I think what you do is you you name the denominations after theologians, and then they'll want to buy it just because they they think that uh, it, it, any way that they can be adjacent to a theologian means they've they've really got it going on. This is like a connection to the old uh, theolo- theologian playing cards we talked about a few months yeah, ago. Exactly right. And, uh, What's interesting is you're using the word denominations, and we already have that in currency. So you have denominations and currency. So, like, you have a $10 bill, a $20 bill, a $50 bill. So, you know, you could just see which one of these Christian denominations is worth more fake internet money gambling that you're certainly going to lose. So, so like, you're, yeah, you're like saying the, 10 Lutherans are worth one Baptist. Oh, this now exactly we're on to it. <laughs> exactly. Now we are on to it. Yes. Yes. Who's going to be like the who's going to be like the highest denomination in Christian Bitcoin from like the denominations? Is it going to be one of the charismatics? Well, it's got to be the Catholics, right? Cuz they're like the original wow. thing. So, I mean, you know. they'd have the biggest hat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. If you if you got a miter, yeah, <laughs> you, that's all right. Well, you see now. Now I think we're talking as far as a strategy to do what, as I understand, the whole point of cryptocurrency is, which is for to get people to give you their real money for your fake money. But you, you know, you right. switch it into being like a market. So they're not just giving you money in order to give you money. They're giving you money for Dogecoin or whatever, and then they feel like that's worth money. So I feel like, yeah, a series of coins based on the denominations, but we run the value of what goes up there by how well the denominations are doing. Oh. So you go on Sunday and put money in the plate at the Lutheran church in the hopes of bumping off the Methodists, but now Mm. your Luther coin is worth more than the Calvin (laughs) coin. Yeah. (laughs) Well, It was predestined to be worth more. That's oh my it. gosh. That's it. <laughs> the Calvinists would have a real hard time with a dip in the market. Yeah, that's oh right. Oh gosh. That's right. How did we not see this coming? <laughs> yeah, the, the Calvin Coin uh, analyst front office is they are not very motivated. Like, guys, did you run those numbers? It doesn't matter. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, I think I think we've got a winner here, fellas. I I think um the 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 main problem is will people find out that uh, uh, we're doing all this to get real money and we're not interested in our own fake money? They don't seem to care so far. Okay, well, there you go. If it helps, we'll throw in some uh, some very very bad portraits of monkeys dressed up as uh, fathers of the faith that you can make your Twitter avatar. And we'll send you some kind of very long fake receipt. And if that's not what an NFT is, I'm sorry, but that's what I think it is. And I refuse to learn more. <laughs> apparently, apparently all you need to do is put Matt Damon on a commercial 
about being brave or something. Or, right. Yeah, yeah a, a lot of these Christian celebrities should be very good at this. You're kind of just saying mumbo jumbo until someone's like, I guess I'll give you money. It'll feel, it feels nice. Maybe something will come from it. That's, you know. Matt, Matt Damon thinks it's a good idea. And he's notoriously good with money, I guess. He was in Rounders. <laughs> we all liked Rounders yeah. when he when he outgambled a uh, bad Russian accent John Malkovich. Yeah. Oh gosh. That was a great documentary. Yes, you know, he's it makes him at least as qualified as half the people on CNBC. Can we cross over the Venn diagram and just make uh like uh Matt King's beard coin and just oh. pick up some bros that just enjoy their beards. That's it. No. Oh. Beard coin. Nail it down. Yeah, I think I think we I think that's definitely a place to start, a way to go. And uh I think the money's coming in and the emergency is turning off. <laughs> We're gonna uh move on to our first question, but first we do want to tell you that if you wanna find a an online product that is actually a product. You get a thing. You give us $8 and you get an email. It's got links to songs and sermons and all sorts of good stuff. We, It's not actually a scam. We realize now we should have just come up with a scam. It would have been much more profitable, but uh, we, we don't have a head for business, so we're just going to keep sending encouraging things that help fund the ministry we do up here in Chicago. That's all at BridgeBox, missionusa.com slash BridgeBox. You can also check out our BridgeCast every Sunday at 7 p.m. Central Time, facebook.com slash Chicago. For a video version of our bridge service. If you can't be with us live in Chicago on Tuesdays, it is the next best thing. Facebook.com slash the bridge Chicago. We're going to jump to our first question here. If you have this all the way to the end, I'll give you some ways you can get in touch with us. Or you can scroll down in your episode descriptions and click the links you find there. First question comes in and says, what is the Holy Spirit? Is it the same as the Holy Ghost? And what does it actually do? A very cool question and uh, similar to something we looked at in a recent BridgeCast. But Jed, where would we start off here? It's a great question. We're going to cover a lot of material together. I want us to start with the bottom line. The Holy Spirit is God within you, there to help you, to comfort you, and encourage you. Let me say that again. The Holy Spirit is just God within you, to help you, to comfort you, and to encourage you. That's what we're going to start with. That's what we're going to end with. Now let's get nerdy for a moment. We're going to start with a fancy old-time word, and that word is Godhead. And it's one word, and it refers to the essence or substance of the Christian God, the, the fundamental stuff of God himself. There is an ancient, well, I don't know if it's ancient exactly. There's a very old uh, document called the Westminster Shorter Catechism that defines a lot of good stuff about the Christian faith. And so here's, we're going to read together from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It writes, how many persons are there in the Godhead? And the answer is, there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, which is another way of saying the Holy Spirit, same thing. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Now, you might be wondering, that's interesting, is there anywhere in the Bible that we can reference that makes it clear that there are three persons, so to speak, that form the substance of God? And in fact, there's a great example. That comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 28, verse 19. This is Jesus talking. He's giving something called the Great Commission, and he says, "'Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of,' wait for it, "'the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.'" 
So here we have this great moment in Scripture where Jesus is making it clear that the substance of God is three persons. As the Catechism says, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Okay, but as you asked in your question, very right, so what does it mean? What does it do? We're going to look at a couple of verses together. The first one comes from the Apostle Paul. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And Paul writes, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. So we've got the Father, and then we've got the Son. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, now wait for it, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So again, God has moved into you. He is inside of you, is in your heart, and he has sealed you as belonging to God, which is super cool. Now we're going to turn to what Jesus directly said about the Holy Spirit. This is John 14. We're jumping around a little bit, and Jesus is talking. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another friend to help you and be with you forever. That friend is the spirit of truth. He lives with you and he will be in you. He will teach you all things. He will remind you of everything I have said to you. So you see these themes of friendship, of being with us, of teaching us, of guiding us. Uh, here's very similar stuff from John 15. I will, Jesus talking again. I will send the friend to you from the Father. He is the spirit of truth who comes from the Father. When the friend comes to help you, he will be a witness about me. Now we're going to jump uh, to actually the Old Testament. This is one of my favorite passages. This is the book of Isaiah. This is chapter 30, verse 21. And the prophet says, Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, This is the way. Walk in it. So again, we have this theme of a guidance that comes essentially from God within us. And we're going to close out with a really great story that you've probably heard before. This is talking about the prophet Elijah. This is in 1 Kings in the 19th chapter. And it goes, The Lord told Elijah, Stand on the mountain in front of me. I am going to pass by. As the Lord approached, a very powerful wind tore the mountains apart. It broke up the rocks, but the Lord wasn't in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire came, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. And after the fire, there was only a gentle whisper, a still small voice. When Elijah heard it, he covered his face, and then God spoke to him. That is the Holy Spirit at its essence. That still small whisper from God that is calling out to you, that is guiding you, that wants to give you comfort, that wants to give you direction, that wants to give you peace. It's a friend. Jesus literally says, this is meant to be your friend. That's, that's who the Holy Spirit is to you. And I would note for you that Christian culture has become obsessed with big and loud, big sounds, big volume, big lights, big everything. Yeah. But mm-hmm. the interesting thing about God is his mode of taking up residence within us, his mode of leading us, his mode of guiding us is about stillness and smallness and quietness and a whisper. In a world that is overrun with noise and overrun with problems, God wants to meet with you in the quiet moments, in the still moments. He's with you in the loud moments too, but he wants to guide us in stillness and in quiet. There's there's this great passage elsewhere in the prophets that says, "In, in solitude and in quietness will be your strength. I believe that's what God wants for you. I know it's what he wants for me. And that's where we begin with our discussion of who the Holy Spirit is, that friend that speaks to us in the stillness and the quiet to comfort us and encourage us and guide us.
that is an excellent, excellent place to start out. I love all that. And Lee, is there anything in that kind of great overview that Jed gave us that jumps out that you want to dig into a little bit more? Yeah, I love the I love the different um, titles that Jed pointed out from the scriptures that that the Holy Spirit is a person who is a teacher, that he is a down payment for the inheritance of heaven. Um, uh, Jesus says in John chapter 14, four different times he calls him the comforter. Um, uh, one of my favorite titles, and this is a really cool thing in the scriptures, the, the Holy Spirit has just a lot of different titles because he has a lot of different roles in the life of a believer. Um, and I love the way Jed laid that out. This is God living within you who has a lot of different jobs. One of the jobs or titles that the Holy Spirit has in the New Testament that I love is the title, it's, it's a Greek word. The Greek word is paraclete, um, but it's that word, if you translated it into English, it would be um, the word advocate or a defense attorney. And that role or that job of the Holy Spirit, this, again, to reinforce what Jed's saying, this is God who lives in you to be your defense attorney. Um, when you're feeling down about yourself, when you're feeling a lot of shame about yourself, the Holy, God the Holy Spirit tells you things about yourself that you need to remember, but you have a hard time believing and keeping straight. That God is your Father, that you are forgiven, that He is with you. He encourages you. He has forgotten all of your wrong, that you have an eternal place in heaven forever that he's helping you, that he is standing right beside you, that he's, he's at work in your life in ways that you can't even see or anticipate or any, all that kind of stuff. Your role is, is to believe um, the, the still small voice, as Jed's saying, of the Holy Spirit, the advocate, the paraclete, the, the defense attorney who tells your heart, I'm on your side. You're forgiven. You're free. You are... In um, you're in my hands. I love you. You don't have anything to worry about. I've got this. The defense attorney is the one who says to you, um, "Don't believe the shameful, discouraging voices that you listen to. You are clean. You are mine. Um, you are sealed, and you are good to go." And I love that role of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, exactly as Jed said, God within you to teach you, to guide you, to walk you through your life, but also to defend you against the messed up lies of the enemy that would keep you under the, under the boot of shame and guilt and all that stuff. He is like in a courtroom defending your case. And I think that's a really, really cool thing to not only to remember, but to pay attention to and to try to access as you try to make your way through your week. That's all fantastic stuff. And Glenn, where do we close this question out? Well, I, I, as you say, that it's fantastic stuff, and these guys have done a great job with it. I think uh, one thing I really would like to say about this question is that it's actually a great question. Um, it, the thing is, I, I, I think we sometimes can be afraid to ask basic questions because it looks like we don't understand the basics. But the, the reality is uh, basic questions in Christianity are always the deepest questions. Uh, all of us could uh, talk for hours and hours about the Holy Spirit. So uh, it's a very deep subject, but it it's, comes from a very simple question. I think that's worth recognizing in your walk, that the deepest things are the simple things. And 
the more complicated things start to sound, the more we're maybe getting further away from the central truths of things. Uh, so we want to thank you for asking uh, what what might be embarrassingly simple, but to us is very deep. Uh, but yeah, uh, as these guys have pointed out, I, I think we get a little bit of confusion off of uh, uh, the Holy Ghost versus the Holy Spirit uh, kind of stuff. Uh, but that's just uh, old-fashioned versus uh, young whippersnappers uh, talk. When When I was very young, it was all about the Holy Ghost, and then... Uh, you know, we had a name change around the seventies there. Um, I, I still use the Holy Ghost when I talk to old preachers and I, they, they want to have, uh, breakfast meetings. And I say, I don't get the Holy Ghost till about noon. So forget it. <laughs> uh, so they, they know what I mean, but, uh, otherwise we're, it's the same, same thing, just a different lingo. Um, as Jed pointed out, the, the Holy Spirit is a part of God that dwells within us. Uh, so that's that Trinity thing, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, you know, it it it's uh, very mysterious, but I think of it like a three-layer cake. You know, you got three layers, but it's all one cake, and that's that's how I work it out. Uh, the Father is, uh, it, it dwells in heaven, and uh, Jesus uh, came down to earth, and the Holy Spirit is the part that dwells within us. So that's those are the, the three layers there, so to speak. Uh, but I think it's really important to work out. Uh, you, you said, "What what does the Holy Spirit do?" And I think uh, one thing I want to zo- zoom in on that is that uh, His job is to speak to your heart about everyday life. Uh, your uh, it, it, exactly as as Jed pointed out and laid it out very well, he uses that still small voice within us. Um, uh, we, we might otherwise call that the voice of our conscience, or you know, sort of our own inner monologue, etc. But there's a part of that inner monologue that is uh, elevated and and is is uh, is not uh, like the low level sinful thoughts that we have all day every day. Uh, so it's easy enough to kind of suss out where the Holy Spirit is speaking to us in the soup of our thoughts. But his job is to talk about what is right for you today, uh, what is right for your situation that you are in. Uh, his job is to speak to you about how does God feel about you right now uh, in the midst of your sin, in the midst of everything that's going on. You can read the Bible and get a very clear picture of, a, a very broad picture of good and bad and right and wrong and, and healthy and unhealthy in our spiritual lives. But you're not going to open that Bible and it's going to say, hey, Susie, uh, today, why don't you just give it a rest with what you've been on lately? It's You're not going to get that kind of specificity <laughs> reading Scripture. The Holy Spirit is there. Uh, to give us that guidance. So he's giving us interpretation of that word, showing how do we apply it to our everyday lives and giving us guidance. Uh, and so I think that's the main thing I would have you focus on, is that this is, uh, you You need a word for today. And the Holy Spirit, uh, it's his job to be there and speak to your heart and give you comfort on that today. That's all awesome stuff from these guys. And again, as as they pointed out, um, 
it can feel silly, I know, sometimes to go on a big question and something that in some way seems Googleable, like, is the Holy Spirit the same thing as the Holy Ghost? But there's a lot of layers to that, and there's a lot of um a lot going on in a lot of different ways. And one of the ways, even if you've been walking with the Lord for a good long time, that you keep finding new things, keep finding things, keep finding angles and layers, as these guys talked about, is to ask those kind of questions, is to poke at even the stuff that feels elementary and could feel uh, rudimentary. And there's a lot of cool stuff there to find. All right, move on to our next question here. It comes in and says, why does it seem like I encounter more and new problems when I'm doing well? Someone said it was because the devil attacks when you're getting close to God, but I don't know about that. And another a great question and a really cool angle on it. Lee, where would we start off with this? It is a really cool question. And and I, I love the uh, just the, the desire to kind of uh, pull the curtain back or poke at something that, you know, you hear some Christian say somewhere. And do, do, does that work out? Do, does that sound right to you? I, I will say from the top that Scripture promises a, a few disquieting things. Um, here, here's a few of them. One that people who know Jesus are guaranteed suffering. That's not a thing that um, a lot of Christians in this country um, hear a lot or are comfortable talking about, um, but the Scripture is very clear. We're guaranteed uh, suffering. Two, that the world is going to continue to get darker until Jesus comes back. That's an absolute—I mean, it's, it's a thing that we see happening in the world, but it's also something that's very clear in Scripture— and three, that sometimes, oddly, and, and I can't explain this to you, even though I'm saying it to you as, as something that is obvious in Scripture, that sometimes the Lord grants the enemy access into people's lives to mess with them. It, it, I mean, you know, you think about, like, what is the, what is the devil up to? And, and I mean, I think his—a lot of his kind of main thing is to get people discouraged, just to get people feeling terrible about themselves, to feeling um, afraid, to feeling uh, bad about who they are and what they bring to the situation, all those kinds of things. Those are all kind of uh, seem like his tactics and everything. And when you look at like, who would he want to mess with? If a person is not really kind of participating in or... Um, kind of active in in like forwarding the kingdom of God in any way. I, I mean, it, it does make sense to me that the enemy wouldn't pay attention to them a, a whole lot. I mean, it, like if you were on a sports team and you were trying to get better from week to week, you wouldn't watch a game film on like the fourth string kicker. Um, because why? Um, they're not going to be on the field playing the game. So I'm not going to watch any film on them. I'm going to be watching the starting quarterback and the starting running back and the starting linebacker. Like I'm going to be watching the best players on the team. That's where I'm going to focus my strategy and my tactics. I'm going to try to figure out how to take care of those people. So it does make sense that if there is this personality, if there is this person who is a bad guy, who is an evil enemy, who wants to take you out and get you discouraged and get you afraid and get you uh, not believing and not trusting in in the heart of Jesus and and the activity of the Lord, that 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 entity that person would be going after the people who are really getting things done in the kingdom. All that to say, um, you talk to people who are getting stuff done in the kingdom, and they will find stuff going haywire in their ministry and in their stuff all the time. Um, I, I can't tell you the number of times, um, you know, we have been 
uh, in the process of going about something for the kingdom, and just stuff goes haywire. Um, stuff does not work out the way that we wanted it to. And, and it makes sense um, that the enemy wants to throw a, a monkey wrench in the middle of all those works. Um, all that to say, if the Lord is allowing the enemy access into your life, one encouragement that I would give you on that is he sees that you are able to call out to him and get the strength that you need and the strategy that you need to cope with that attack. Um, that's, a, that's a funky thing to say, and it may not be all that comforting in this moment. But one thing that I can tell you is it is a cool thing to know that the Lord sees you as a person who is a part of the kingdom in such a way that not only are you in the enemy's sights, but like you can cope with this attack. And he has the resources available to you um, as you call out to him, as you seek his help and all that kind of stuff. If you are about his business, you are going to be in the crosshairs. And at the exact same time, he wants to put the resources available to your fingertips so that you're able to cope with those problems. We are guaranteed suffering. The world is getting darker. And there is this personality who wants us to be discouraged, who wants us to be afraid, who does not want us to trust in the Lord. And the people that are not on the bench, the people that are out there fighting for justice and fighting for people and fighting for love and all that stuff, those are the people who are going to be in the crosshairs of the enemy. And those are the people who are going to find the resources of the God of heaven on their side as they call out to it. That is a really, really great place to start this off. And Glenn, where do we go from there? Well, yeah, I I think part of the problem that we have with answering some of these questions is it sounds like someone has said something weird and either bad or uh, badly phrased. And um, it, it's kind of, uh, do we unravel whatever, you know, rat's nest of, of a word salad you were given, or do we just kind of start over and just tell you how it is? Uh, I'm going to choose the start over and tell you how it is uh, option on that. Um, here's the 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 uh, essential truth about our growth in our spiritual life is that growth comes from overcoming challenges and tests. Uh, growth does not come from uh, uh, reading your Bible. It doesn't come from prayer. It doesn't come from any of those things. Strength comes from those places. Wisdom on what to do comes from those places, but growth happens when we step out in faith and put all those things in action and and use them to overcome something that's happening to us. So um, that's that's how we grow. So it, and I think it's important to meditate on that because I think. I, the the myth that I walk around in my head is if it wasn't for all these people, I'd be a really good Christian. You know, they're all bugging me and driving me crazy, and you know, I'm I'm having a hard face everywhere I go, and I'm, whatever it is, they're bringing me down. Uh, and I could blame the devil on that, say the devil's trying to bring me down, and I'm sure he is. But uh, growth doesn't happen when all of those challenges go away. Uh, that would be stagnation. I, I would be, I would just be coasting or something. Uh, growth happens when I overcome those challenges. 
So um, uh, those challenges and those tests, if you want to put it in that sort of way, uh, the enemy is often part of that. In other words, he attacks us in certain ways. It creates uh, either you, you're going to pass this test or you're going to fail that test. Um, but that's a little bit different from saying that um, it, it's like the devil's, um, it, it, like you can't grow without something bad happening to you or something like that. Uh, it's it's simply saying the the means of growth is overcoming challenges and and the enemy is often part of that challenge. Uh, but it's also worth pointing out that if the person who's trying to tell you all about the devil's attacks, if that person isn't really rising up to the challenges in their life, they're not really getting a whole lot of devil action going on because the devil's got them where he wants them. If if you're not really changing and growing, if we can't see uh, a person, you know, becoming a better person and and uh, overcoming challenges, then uh, that person is not under any heavy duty attack because there's there's nothing to attack. <laughs> it's all it's all if if the enemy couldn't uh, draw it out any better than that. Uh, I think my hope for you and my hope for myself is that people who know us well and know us intimately could say, you know, he might be a hot mess, but he is way better than he used to be. Uh, That's higher praise than this guy acts really straight when everybody's watching, but behind closed doors, we have no idea. That's a little bit of a different thing. And if that person's talking all about the devil's attacking you, uh, then I think it's it's about recognizing uh, uh, that uh, that all that demon talk sometimes is a way of, of of making it look as if you're engaged in some sort of battle, spiritual warfare, etc. Uh, when you're really just making up that you're you're part of a battle that's uh, that's not really taking place because there's nothing to be fighting. Another great, great direction to take that in. And Jed, let me get you to close out here because I think both Lee and Glenn have done an amazing job here talking about what might be happening as sure. and, and new things that might be happening. But then there's also the angle of mostly the same things are happening and we're perceiving and noticing different things, right? Oh, absolutely. And I think it's worth noting that um, this kind of that perception issue applies to it does apply to stuff in our spiritual lives, but it also applies to just a lot of day to day life. Basically, part of growth in any field, in any arena is noticing certainly imperfections you didn't notice before. If you're a trained chef, when you bite into a dish, you notice more than a beginner notices. You probably notice more good things, but you definitely notice more bad things. Like, I'm blessed to get to work with some talented musicians, and they hear everything that's wrong with the music that I send them. They hear all the problems because they're they're really good. Being good at something means noticing imperfections. But then I think the thing that we need to start to acknowledge is there's a difference between an imperfection and a problem. Those aren't the same. The better we get, the more that we notice the imperfections, but hopefully the wiser we get, the more we can tell the difference between imperfections and problems. 
And I think it's worth you as a thought experiment looking at stuff in your life and saying, how do I know when it's a problem? I may be noticing that it's an imperfection, but that's not necessarily the same as a problem. How do I know when it's a problem? Right? It's like if a talented chef were to bite into a bit of pastry, he, he or she could probably tell whether you used real vanilla bean or vanilla extract. And if you use the extract, well, that would be a kind of imperfection. Is it a problem? If you're not on a cooking show where you're being judged, then no, it's, it's not a problem. It is an imperfection, but it's not a problem. And I think that it's a new idea for a lot of us to say that there could be things in life that we're aware are not ideal, but they're also not problematic. Um, and I think giving ourselves permission to be okay with a certain amount of, of imperfection, but also having, again, the depth of insight and the depth of wisdom to know when things are going from, oh, in an ideal world, I wish it was more A than B, to, okay, now this is a problem. Now this is something that's actively getting in the way of my goals. It's actively getting in the way of the kind of life that I want to live for myself. It, it is keeping me from being the person that I want to be and living the kind of life that I want to live. So to take it back to the fairly silly vanilla example for a second – if you are trying to impress people in the commercial baking industry and you're aware that there are obvious imperfections in your baked goods, then yes, you, you should fix those because they are probably problems that are keeping you from your goals. But if you're just making stuff for your friends just to say, hey, I love you, I was thinking of you, here's a cookie, then it might be an imperfection, but it's definitely not a problem. Here's one more thought that, that begins to link this back to the spiritual stuff, but it, it still applies to the rest of life. There's this great phrase from, from Shakespeare that says, sound and fury signifying nothing. And I think one of the great struggles in the spiritual life, it's true in the rest of life too, but especially in spiritual life, is the extent to which imperfections can look so furious and so loud that we think they must be problems. I can tell that it must be a problem because it's very high volume with lots of flashing lights. That's how you know it's a problem. But it's not. It's not getting in the way of anything. It's not keeping me from being the person God's asking me to be. It's not keeping me from the life I'm trying to get to. I may not be crazy about it, but it actually doesn't qualify as a problem. And if you can dig it, there are a few things in my experience that the devil loves more than to get people to chase their tail. His favorite game is to give you an imperfection to solve that is not actually a problem. And he does that most often through sound and fury. Give you something that you have big feelings about. Give you something that seems like a really big deal. Give you something that's like, how, how could someone just be expected to ignore this? This is outrageous. Even though it's not causing any actual functional problems in your life. Here's a closing thought experiment for you to think about, because again, this idea of imperfections versus problems, I really want to encourage you to think about this. I want you to think about how many imperfections you have noticed that six months later simply had not made any difference in your life at all. Where you're like, this is a thing that I'm not crazy about. I sure do wish it was different. But six months later, it had not negatively impacted your life in any way. Problems are negatively impacting your life. But imperfections don't inherently do that. And so the thing that I want to close, I want to encourage you is start looking at outcomes. 
the the world and marketers and the devil, who is a great marketer, they they want you to focus on the sound and the fury. The thing I want to encourage you to focus on, focus on the outcomes. The more you grow, the more you're going to notice imperfections. But choose to develop that wisdom where you can tell the difference between imperfections and problems. The more you do that, the more you're going to have a life you feel great about. That is all great stuff, and it can't be said too much. If you do run across a bunch of witches in the wood woods doing poems about how you're about to uh, come across your downfall, that's probably real. Pay attention to yeah, that. Yeah. That, that. Those are warnings worth heeding. All right, we're going to move on to our final question here. It comes in and says, I feel like I know the Christmas story so well that it's hard to get excited about it. Are there any particular aspects of that that interest or jump out to you guys this year? And another cool question. And Glenn, where do we start off here? Well, yes, I, I think if you want to get a new perspective on the Christian story, uh, Christmas story, excuse me, I think there's, it's about looking at that you've got a perspective that we're used to from knowing how the story ends. We We know that the birth of Jesus is the most amazing, wonderful, beautiful thing that ever happens in the history of anything ever. So it's great to know about that. It's great to celebrate that. It's great to feel excited about it and so forth. I think the idea that the Savior of mankind comes as a baby is like, there's something to that that I think I can meditate on for a long time and, you know, why the Lord would do that. Uh, But again, all of this is from the perspective of we know what how this story ends. I think if you want to really get a feel for a new perspective on the Christmas story, pretend you don't know how any of this turns out. And this story will freak you the heck out. Uh, the idea that uh, it, an, an angel says, okay, you're going to be pregnant— you're going to have this child out of wedlock, you're be pregnant out of wedlock, and everyone is going to know that about you, and everyone is going to talk about that. And you can say all you want about uh, the, you know, this miracle, but nobody's really going to be buying that kind of stuff. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. But it's amazing. That's what you have to remember, is everyone's going to be talking about you horribly, but it's amazing. And then you end up giving birth in a barn. I mean, it's a barn, dude. Get, I mean, it's not sanitary. It's not nice. It's like basically outdoors. In the middle of nowhere, where you know, there's nobody around to help you out. I mean, there's a clueless dude there, but what's he going to do? And then uh, the 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 grand prize for this is guess what we've got to go on the run and live in Africa for the next decade and and a bit after that. Uh, so uh, yeah, if if I came to you if if you were observing this in real time, you would say this is a tragedy. This is. Mm. No one would have mm. faith. It, like, 
uh, sure, the the story is this is going to turn out great, but then he just becomes a carpenter and doesn't do anything till he's like, you know, in his later 20s. He only does three years of ministry. He doesn't travel any further than his feet can carry him, which is mostly between the city of Jerusalem and Galilee, where there's nothing. There's it's the, there's just like rocks and like sand and some grapes. That's it. There's nothing. It's goats or whatever. Uh, you know, he doesn't travel the world and all that. Three years and it's all over with, they put him to death. I think you, every part of Jesus' story, if you were seeing it in real time, you would think, this is not going anywhere. It, it It's not really trying to go anywhere. It, it What has really been accomplished here? How is this ever going to spread and be successful? And the story of how it spreads and becomes successful is, you know, uh, prostitutes and lepers and, and whatnot. And and then people get enslaved and then sold into slavery and spreads throughout the Roman Empire. And, you know, it, it rises up from from slaves. And that's how that how this all comes into being. The whole thing is so bizarrely improbable. And every single step of it looks like failure. And I, I think if you look at your life and say, right now, it just doesn't seem like I have anything going on, and it doesn't, I feel like something might kick in someday soon, and I have hope, and the Lord's given me encouragement on certain things, but it just doesn't look like anything right now. I think you can take that and line that up with the Christmas story perfectly and say, you know, that... that uh, sometimes when God does amazing things, it just does not in any way look great externally. That is a great place to start that off. And Jed, where would we pick it up from there? Well, this this ties into the Christmas story, but I will tell you the thing because you asked that I like about the Christmas season. And that is, so every person on the planet actually has a limit of the amount of generosity that they are willing to receive. Um, if you have not discovered that about yourself, uh, you do because literally everybody has a moment. It's like, Whoa, I am not comfortable with this anymore. Everyone has a limit to how much they are willing to receive from others. And it turns out that God actually wants to give us an infinite amount of goodness in our lives. And, uh, all of us are, are kind of limiting ourselves on how much that we're willing to receive, but just in a pure human context, um, actually, I think a lot of us have more cool stuff available to us than we are comfortable taking a hold of most of the time. I think mm-hmm. that's true for uh, the vast majority of people, certainly. And the thing that I like about Christmas is there's a time of year where uh, people are a little bit more open to kindness than they are otherwise. Uh, people are a little bit more open, not just to being generous, but perhaps more importantly, to receiving generosity than they are most of the time. Most people are actually really closed off to receiving good stuff. Um, it, that doesn't sound right, but it's been my experience. I think most people are really, really closed off. And so um, Christmas is this time of year where like, it's almost like a positive version of the purge where for 24 hours, the rules don't apply. Um, like you can be really generous very briefly once a year um, and I don't mean monetarily, this can be any form of generosity, but you can be really generous for this brief period and people are way more likely to be cool with it and receive it and take a hold of it. And that's what I love about Christmas, because I, I think that yeah. most of us have far more ability to make the world a better place than we think we do. And one of the major things standing in the way is that 
we're all much more closed off to receiving generosity than we think we are. And so Christmas is a season where those rules is not exactly they're suspended, but it's a different dynamic than it normally is. So the thing I would encourage you to do is to be thinking and cogitating and praying on what are ways that I want to be kind and generous in my life to the people around me where I'm not sure they'd be able to receive it. But maybe this time of year I say, hey, it's Christmas. So I did this thing that normally might be a bit much, but it's not now. Like, don't push that super hard, but think about what are ways that you could be kind and generous to the people in your life and they might be a little bit more open to it than they normally would. I think that's a beautiful thing. And I think it very much ties into the spirit of Christmas. It definitely does. I'm also writing down Christmas purge for a future emergence <laughs> fine because wow. I feel that that is an idea that necessitates some exploration. And Lee, a lot of great stuff from these guys. Where would you close us out? Yeah, really, really fantastic stuff already. I, the only thing I would add, just kind of as a just a, as kind of a nerdy Bible thing, is I, I love the aspect of the Christmas story that was all um, already promised. Um, there's a lot to dig in who, into here and you could just kind of Google it, but just, you could like go into Google and just say like, what were old Testament prophecies about the birth of Jesus or about the coming Messiah? And it's really, really cool to realize how much of the Christmas story was foretold before it happened in the scriptures that these guys, that the folks, God's people had a book with all kinds of promises laid out bef- way before any of it ever happened about when Jesus would come, where he would be born, uh, the, the whole thing about, um, that Glenn mentioned about Jesus becoming a refugee and, on the run um, and an immigrant in Africa, and then, and then moving back to Israel later and growing up in, um, in his kind of formative years in, in, uh, in Nazareth. And you know, born in Bethlehem, uh, moved to Egypt, uh, grew up in Nazareth, and all of these things are foretold. I mean, there's just promises in Scripture verses in the Old Testament about all of these things, who he would be, what family he would be born into, really, really specific stuff. And the reason I think that stuff is so cool is that it gives me a lot of hope about other promises that God has made, um, other promises in Scripture that God has made to me about the fact that that Jesus says I will um he says I will be with you always even to the end of the age. Um Hebrews chapter 5 says God has said I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. So we can know with confidence that the Lord is our help. Uh what can man do to me? That that kind of thing. I can know that I'm not going to be alone even when I don't feel it or see it because God has promised and he has kept his promises before. So when he makes promises um that he's doing invisible things that I can't see. And this kind of lays in right with Glenn's answer. If you were to look at this, this, the Christmas story on the surface, you would say, okay, so like the hope of all the world, you're just going to hand to a couple of poor teenagers, like a couple right. of, of poor middle school kids, and they have no help, and they have no money. That, that's the hope of all the world. <laughs> and the whole thing works out, you know, and that gives me a lot of hope about the promises that God has made about my life. So when I look about when I look at Old Testament prophecies and promises about the coming of the Messiah, it gives me uh, it bolsters and, and gives me uh, a support structure to my faith that God is is able to keep His promises that He's made to me, that He's always going to be with me, and that He's working out invisible stuff in my life, and that I can trust Him to take care of things that 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 I can't handle on my own. And so, 
Uh, my faith is bolstered by the, the promise-keeping of the Christmas story based on those Old Testament prophecies. That's all great, great stuff from these guys. And I will uh, tack, tack in my own here, and it's, it, is, it will shock no one who is a longtime listener to the podcast to know that this is going to come from a, a Christmas writing by uh, Frederick Beekner. And I'm, I'm going to read you the, the relevant passage, and you'll, you'll think you know where I'm going with it, and you do, but I'm also going to add a little bit something onto it. And he says, Christmas itself is by grace. It could never have survived our own blindness and depredations otherwise. It could never have happened otherwise. Perhaps it is the very wildness and strangeness of the grace that has led us to try to tame it. We've tried to make it habitable. We have roofed it in and furnished it. We have reduced it to an occasion we feel at home with. At best, a touching and beautiful occasion. At worst, a trite and cloying one. But if the Christmas event in itself is indeed as a matter of cold, hard fact, all it's cracked up to be, then even our best efforts are misleading. The word became flesh. Ultimate mystery born with a skull you could crush one-handed. Incarnation. It is not tame. It is not touching. It is not beautiful. It is uninhabitable terror. It is unthinkable darkness riven with unbearable light. Agonized labor led to it, vast upheavals of intergalactic space-time split apart, a wrenching and tearing of the very sinews of reality itself. You can only cover your eyes and shudder before it. Before this, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, who for us and for our salvation, as the Nicene Creed puts it, came down from heaven. Came down. Only then do we dare uncover our eyes and see what we can see. It is the resurrection and the life she holds in her arms. And that's beautifully written, and I think it tacks into a sentiment that, that all these guys were talking about, that this, is, this plan is insane, this is terrifying, this is, that I love that, you know, it is uninhabitable terror. You cannot look too long at how bad this seems like it should be going. <laughs> and there are certainly, you know, certainly over the last couple of years and in all of our lives— uh, things where it really, we really need to see a situation that seems like it's going to go that bad and then works out. But I, I was reading that this year, as I do most years around Christmas time, that passage. And it, it struck me that I don't think Beekner is really criticizing the, uh, as he calls it, you know, our attempts to tame and make Christmas habitable. And with as hard as the last couple of beer, years have been for everybody, for especially for people like Christmas now, I, I, took a turn and I'm starting to see trying to make this huge, mysterious, deep thing comfortable and habitable and pleasant as a strength. Like it's not the whole of it, but neither is the the horror and the the terror the whole of it. It is also a beautiful moment. It is also this familial thing and what people have built around Christmas, kind of like you know, Lee was saying of a framework to put something on the fact that we can put our, our need for positive emotions and reassuring things and, and promises kept and hang all those in this little story is a really cool and amazing thing. So I I guess what I've been thinking on this year is not only what Christmas is, but what we make it and what we, we build around it. And there's some really awesome things to build on all those things. These guys gave you in that if you have a question for us, say that podcast at gmail.com, thebridgechicago.tumblr.com slash ask. If you want to keep that entirely anonymous, you can check out our BridgeCast every single Sunday at 7 p.m. Central Time, facebook.com slash thebridgechicago, 
or all of them are archived over on that same Facebook page if you can't join us live. We're going to take out the song this week. One last Christmas song. This one is from our sister program, The Bridge Loud, featuring our friend Lynn's Honeyman. Yeah. Bridge Loud version of Away in a Manger touches on some of the, the cool stuff we were talking about in that last question. We'll take you out with that. Thanks for listening. Just remember, we love you. God loves you. There's nothing you can do about it. The Say That Podcast reminding you to invest in Beardcoin today. Sure, it's the same thing as gambling, but with the magic of Beardcoin, you get to call it investing. (laughs) (laughs) Away in a manger, no crib for a bed. The little Lord Jesus lays down his sweet head. The stars in the sky. Comment.